Thank you. It's good to gather together around God's Word and we're going to continue today going through the book of Romans. We'll look at this for a little while. We're going to continue a real key passage in Romans chapter 3 from verse 21 to 26. I hope you like the new colour scheme, by the way. Some folk weren't able to see, so I hope you can see better now with the stuff. Yep, it's better. Oh, well, Liz has given me the thumbs up, so I must be okay. That's good to know. Right, Romans chapter 3 from verse 21. And here Paul says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies the man who has faith in Jesus. Let's come and pray. Father, we pray as we come to this section of your word that takes us right to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come to you and we pray that you today will open your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we often uh, don't really appreciate how dark night actually is until you get out into the country, you know, get away from the town and the, the lights uh, and the cities, etc. And we've got friends, Elaine and I, who live in an old farmhouse on the outskirts of Newton Stewart. And when we visit them, I've done it for a while, but when we do, one of the things that amuses me is you, you lie in bed at night and you can't actually literally put your hand right in front of your face and not see a thing. Even better, a number of years ago, we used to have a, a little holiday cottage up in Port Nocky on the Murray Coast, and upstairs in the bedroom, there were Velux blackout blinds. And you know, I used to have great fun taking people up there and pulling the blinds up and down. In seconds, you could move from impenetrable darkness to bright, shining sunlight. Isn't it sad, the things that amuse me? But there we are, that's one of them. But the passage that we're looking at here this morning in Romans 3, 21 to 26, is this kind of passage. It's a night to day, darkness to light kind of passage. For in the previous two chapters from Romans 1.18 and on, there has not been a glimpse of light. It's been darkness, darkness all the way. The darkness of man's sin, of the obviously immoral pagan, the seemingly moral, upright citizen, and the outwardly religious, all without exception, are sinners and stand before God, judged and condemned and without excuse for our sin. And in fact, verse 23 here, one of the best known verses in the Bible, it really 
draws together much of what was, was said in Romans chapter 1 and 2 and underlines just why we are sinners, just what it is that makes us sinners. For all have sinned, it says, and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin isn't about where we stand in relation to other people. Sin isn't about whether or not we are better than, we live better lives than other people. In fact, it doesn't matter where we stand in relation to our fellow men and women. It doesn't matter if we are the most moral and the kindest person on the face of the planet. It doesn't matter. For sin isn't about where we stand in relation to other people, the human pecking order. Rather, sin is about where we stand in relation to God. For God made us, you see, to know his glory. He made us to share in his glory. God who himself is totally pure and good, spiritually and morally, perfect and holy, he made us, men and women, with the potential to walk with him in his holiness, to share in his holiness. But we chose instead to rebel against him. We chose, instead of living under his lordship, to take charge of our own lives, to go our own way, to do as we decide. It's this that makes us sinners. Not where we stand in relation to our fellow humans, but the fact that we fall short of the glory of God. Handley Moole, a well-known Bible teacher of an earlier generation, he puts it like this. The prostitute, the liar, the murderer are short of it. That is God's glory. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you are on the crest of an alp. But you're as little able to touch the stars as they. That's the darkness. But here in Romans 3, 21 to 26, the light comes bursting through. The light of God's grace made available to all through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 21 and 22 here is really the, the equivalent of, of the light switch going on. But now, Paul says, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, let me just make it clear that, that it's almost impossible to overestimate the importance of these verses. In terms of Paul's theology, in terms of our Christian understanding of the nature of the gospel. Cranfield, who was the professor of theology at Durham University, and who's written what is widely acclaimed as the finest of all the commentaries on Romans, he says of these verses that they are the centre and the heart of the main section of Romans. And Leon Morris, another Bible commentator, he goes even further, for he suggests that this may be possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. And the reason why this paragraph is so important is because it introduces a concept that is key 
to Christian faith and experience. Justification. The Christian doctrine, the Christian teaching of justification. Which is what, from these verses, we're going to look at together now. Beginning with justification, a definition. A definition. Now, where we have to begin here is by understanding that justification is a technical legal term taken from the first century law courts. It's about the, the pronouncement of a judge. And it's the opposite of condemnation. It's our not guilty, but it actually is added on. It's our not guilty plus. It covers more than that. It means more than that. It's about acquittal. It's about vindication. It's about being declared right or innocent. In fact, the word that we translate justification and the word righteousness, righteous, are rooted together in the same basic Greek word, which is actually very relevant here. Because in these verses, Paul makes absolutely clear the essential connection that there is between God's righteousness and our justification. That is, that we are justified because of God reaching out to us and giving us the gift of his righteousness. John Stott, who's, I think, at his best in, in looking at these verses, he says here, the righteousness of or from God is a combination of his righteous character his saving initiative, and the gift, his gift, of a righteous standing before him. It is his just justification of the unjust, his righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. God justifies us then by willingly giving us, as a gift of his righteousness, a righteous standing before him. So you see, justification is more than forgiveness. It is forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. And I think many Christians need to learn that. That when you become a Christian, it's not just that the negative is dealt with. It's not just glorious as that is, that your sins are dealt with. But more, you also become a wonderfully new person. You gain a wonderfully new status with God. We come into a restored new relationship with God. We come into a place where he is ready to pour his blessings and all his favor upon us. It's as if by this act, the doors of heaven are opened up to us. And God's ready to pour his grace, pour his riches and resources and power into our lives. The trouble I think with too many Christians is that we stand forever in the doorway. We receive forgiveness but we don't then go on to lay hold of the riches that God has for us, the resources of heaven made available. So justification is more than forgiveness. It's about coming into a whole new righteous standing with God. But it is the beginning, though, not the end of the road. Now, what I mean by that is that justification is not the same 
as holiness, or to use the more technical term, it's not the same as sanctification. You see, justification we receive as a gift the moment we put our trust in Christ. This is how God now sees us in Christ. And this is what we will be at the end of time in heaven in Christ. Holiness, though, is a process. Holiness is a process whereby faith, trust, and obedience, where we are called to live lives that are Christ-like. We're called to live lives that are more in line with that status that God has given us. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2 verse 12, we're called to work out our salvation. I think this is an important distinction to make because there were people around in in Paul's day who called themselves Christians. And sadly, I believe we see variants of this in our own day. There were Christians around who thought that because they were justified in Christ, because they now by faith had this righteous status in God's sight, that now this meant that they could live however they wished in this life, that they could sin as much as they wanted because this is how God sees them. But you see, what Paul makes clear elsewhere in the book of Romans, especially, particularly in Romans chapter 6, is that once we put our faith in Jesus, God gives us, God plants in our hearts a new desire to be holy and he calls us to holiness. Romans 6, 12 puts it this way. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You see, what Paul's saying is that it's absolutely spiritually abnormal for a Christian to live an unholy life. And either that person is a backsliding Christian or they're not really a Christian at all. So that's the definition then of justification. It's God willingly giving us as a gift of his righteousness a righteous standing before him. But let's move on to look at justification at source and and that is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. As it says in verse 24, we are justified freely by his grace. You see, what this makes clear is that this new status that, that, that God gives isn't about something that we did or that we can do or earn. It isn't something that's about our merit or our work, something we deserve. It's never that because our sin, our choice to sin, that's now rooted in at the core of our being and that touches and taints all that we do and all that we are, this sin that separates us from God leaves us also incapable of doing anything about our own situation. And so you see, God acts. God takes the initiative to save us from what would be our deserved fate of condemnation. And let's be clear here, let's be very clear. It's not that in a sense... Jesus comes and does what the Father was unwilling or reluctant to do. It's not that. No, this 
decision to save us by giving us as a gift this new standing before God that we could never warrant or deserve. This gracious, that is totally undeserved act of love is rooted in the heart of the Father. Yes, it is. But it's not that Jesus came unwillingly. Far from it. He came voluntarily. And he gave himself freely. But he did it in response to the Father's initiative. But the two were joined together. Jesus says, his words in Hebrews 10, 7, Here I am, willingly. I have come to do your will, O God. The initiative of the Father. So, yes, our status our standing before God now in Christ, if we are his by faith, is a gift of God's grace. A gift of his grace. It's God loving, God stooping, God coming to our rescue, God giving himself generously and freely in and through Jesus Christ. Next we're going to move on to look at justification. It's grounds, and that is the cross of you see, the big question is, if God justifies sinners freely by his grace, then on what grounds does he do so? That is, how is it possible for a righteous and just God to declare the unrighteous righteous without either compromising his righteousness or condoning their unrighteousness. I mean, right throughout the, the Old Testament, God repeatedly, again and again, tells his people that they should justify the righteous and they should condemn the wicked. Why Proverbs 17.15 actually declares acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And in Exodus 23 verse 7, God says as clear as you could want. He says, I will not acquit the guilty. So how then can God do what he forbids others to do? What he says he will never do. How can he do it? It's only possible because of the cross. Only the cross. And what God did for us in the cross, Paul explains here, by using three expressions that are now treasured by all true Christians. The first is <coughs> redemption. Verse 24. That God justifies us freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. Now if justification is a legal term taken from the law courts, then so redemption is a business term taken from the marketplace. In Old Testament times and still on into the world of the New Testament, this was the term that was used when slaves were bought in order to be set free. In fact, not that long ago, it might still continue. In places like Sudan, Christian relief agencies were actually involved in, in buying back Christians in just this way who'd been caught and enslaved by Muslim militias. They were involved, they, they paid a ransom, they paid a redemption in order that these Christians might be set free. Well, so you see, we too are slaves outside of Christ. 
were enslaved to sin, held in the power of the evil one. But Jesus paid the price for us. He did it as he took the punishment that should have been ours. So it says, he was the ransom that set us free. Mark 10, 45. It says there, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second key phrase here is found in verse 25. It says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, that is sacrifice that makes us one with, that's what it means. This is translated in the AV as propitiation. But I want to say, don't be put off by the fact that that's made a kind of unusual, complicated sounding word, because what it basically means, what it means is to do something to make an angry person happy again. And in the pagan world of Paul's time, this was a well-known term among pagans. Pagan gods who were angry had to be appeased and made happy. They had to be propitiated or their worshippers were in mortal danger. For example, in the Greek legends, stormy seas kept Agamemnon from setting sail. And so they decided clearly the gods were angry. So his own daughter, Iphigenia, was offered up as a burnt sacrifice. <coughs> And the gods were propitiated by this and the fleet was able to sail. Now, given that kind of context, it's maybe understandable, but so crudely put, there are many people who find the thought of Jesus being a sacrifice to appease an angry God off-putting. Thinking people in the world have, have rejected Christianity for this reason. And they're have been Christians who've sought to more recently reinterpret this aspect of the Bible's teaching to make it more acceptable at a human level in the world of today. Like as I've mentioned before, my, my friend from Spurgeon's days, Steve Chalk, who I quote, wrote in a book not that long ago, he described the cross and this idea of the Father propiti being propitiated by the sacrifice, he described it as a form of cosmic child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offence he had not even committed. Understandably, he says, people both inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. And so you see, Steve's view of the cross now is that instead of it being an atoning sacrifice of God's son, instead of it being a propitiation, that it is instead a symbol of love. It's the greatest ever example of love. Now, I want to say to you, all of that is simply classic liberalism. And my response to Steve, you know, in 
all respect would be to say, Steve, as I suspected, you weren't always listening at lectures. Because looking back, in his early days, he was, he's a, he was a great evangelist, but Steve's preaching on the cross, often in a, in a crude way, centred very much on the physical suffering and punishment of Christ. The very thing that he's now uncomfortable with, he's actually uncomfortable with his previous self. And it, it seems to me, and again I say this with respect, that he seems not to have ever really understood the cross properly. His problem isn't so much with what the Bible actually teaches, but with his own misunderstanding, misinterpretation of it. And to those others, Christians and non-Christians, who have problems with the thought of Christ being an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation, what I'd want to say is if that's where you are, then you don't understand the glorious perfection that is God's holiness. That he is blindingly, totally, absolutely pure and good. And so then, in the light of that then, you do not understand the awful seriousness of our sin. You don't. No, nor do you understand the difference that there is between the so often self-centered, irrational anger of man and the righteous just holy wrath of God and certainly you do not understand the depths of God's love but you see the facts are that while Paul is using the term propitiation and using a term as he did so that first century readers would understand yet he didn't take this on wholesale uncritically no he took this and adapted it changed it in order to fit the Christian context. Because you see, there is the world of difference between the first century pagan understanding of propitiation, of atoning sacrifice, and the Christian understanding. The world of difference. For instance, the pagan gods are angry because they're moody and ill-tempered. Their anger is irrational, and often it's out of all proportion. In contrast, our God's Holy wrath is the result of his righteous, just reaction. The reaction there has to be to sin and evil. He must react to this. God must, or there would no longer be righteousness and justice. There would no longer be a distinction between good and evil in our world. And then further in the pagan system, it was up to human beings to do something, to make some sacrifice in order to appease the gods and start again. But you see, the Christian position is that as sinners, we can do nothing to deal with our sin. We don't have to do it. We cannot do it. So what we could not do, God did. Such is his amazing love that he sent his son to die in our place. That's love. And freely and willingly, the Son did this because he loves us too. Far from it being the Father abusing the Son, rather the Father and the Son were united together in the most wonderful act of love. Because let's be clear, it wasn't just Jesus that suffered as he hung on the cross. 
No, as God the Father saw the one who he'd known and loved for all eternity, loved with a perfect love, as he saw him, his son there, as he saw him hanging, suffering, to pay the price for sin and the Father's heart was broken, I believe, in a way that we could never understand. But the Father and the Son, they were willing to pay that price to bring us back into right relationship, to win for us again a righteous standing with our God. Such is the love of the Father and the Son. The third term that Paul uses to explain how God has made it possible to justify, to give us this new righteous standing. The third term is demonstration. For as it's made clear here by Paul, the cross is, as well as everything else that it is, it is a demonstration. A demonstration of God's justice. Verse 25 and 26. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and to be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now you see, what this is telling us is that the reason why God was able to overlook sin in the past, the reason why God was and is able to let nations and individuals go unpunished, was not because he was ready to condone evil, was not because he was turning his back on justice, because that is impossible. It is impossible. Justice is at the heart of who God is. He is a just God. No, but rather, he was able to let these things to some degree go because he knew that ultimately he was going to act to deal with the sin, to punish this sin in the death of his son. And so in the cross then, God has acted in the cross to demonstrate to all men and women, to demonstrate to every generation that he is a just God who must act against sin, which he did in taking the punishment that was ours and paying the penalty of our sin in Jesus Christ. So yes, the cross is a demonstration of God's justice. So how is able then, God able? How is he able to justify sinners? How is he able to give sinners such as us, me and you, how is he able to give us a new status, a new standing in his sight? How is he able to do this and still maintain his own holiness, still maintain his righteousness and justice? How is he able to do it? Only through the cross. The cross is the only possible ground of justification. Finally, briefly, let's look at justification. It's means. And that is faith. It's faith. For there's only one way that we can win forgiveness. 
There's only one way that we can make this new restored standing with God ours. And that is by faith. For example, verse 22, the righteousness, this righteousness from God comes by faith. That's the only way we can do it. By coming humbly, broken, empty-handed. Come and recognise that there's nothing that we can do to win this. And simply putting our trust in what God has done for us. What he has won for us. I want to finish now with a, just a final quote from John Stott. This is what he says. Through the sin-bearing substitutionary death of his son... God has propitiated his own wrath in such a way as to redeem us and justify us and at the same time demonstrate his justice. We can only marvel at the wisdom, holiness, love and mercy of God and fall down before him in humble worship. The cross should be enough to break the hardest heart. And melt the ice's heart. How I pray that that's the case here today. That every heart might be broken. Every heart might be melted once again. As we are reminded just what God did. The price God paid in the cross, in Christ, to restore us again our right standing with him let's come and pray father we give you our thanks for that cross of jesus christ we come again and we say that it is that it is amazing grace amazing grace that has saved us amazing grace that has made salvation possible for each one of us and Lord, that gift is there and it's available today. And what you ask is that we take hold of that gift by faith. That we put our trust in the Jesus who died for us. We put our trust in that cross that stands at the fulcrum of history and eternity. That we put our trust once more in you. Lord, move in our hearts. Help us to respond to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>